recognize human faces. So, to kind of make this clear and concrete, let's imagine that my sister suffered from this and she was laying asleep in a, hall, a hospital bed. I might then walk into the room and stand quietly in front of her. Not move, just stand there. Okay. If a nurse were then to wake her up and say, hey, look who's here, then when she looked at me, she might not be sure at all who I was. She would sense the familiarity of my features, um, which is likely the result of her implicit learning, but she might not explicitly recognize me. She might be thinking things like the following. Is this someone I know from work? Or maybe this is a TV star or a rock star. Or maybe it's my brother. All of these options would seem possible. Now, as soon as I spoke or moved, she would recognize me right away. Okay, but based only on the visual features of my face, that recognition would not occur. So, the conscious declarative memory is blocked, but a general sense of familiarity remains. We're going to be talking about this familiarity notion in detail in subsequent le lectures. But prosopagnosia occurs really when a very specific part of the brain is damaged. And it's an area called the fusiform gyrus. We now are pretty sure that this brain area is critical for allowing us to form what we call holistic perceptions, which are perceptions that are based on how collections of features occur together. So let's think about faces for a moment again. We don't recognize somebody's face based on any specific feature. Not the shape of their nose or their lips or their eyes. It's not one feature that defines who you are by your facial appearance. Rather, it's the way the various features of your face combine. That's what makes us all unique, and that's what the fusiform gyrus seems critical for, allowing perception and recognition at this holistic level, this combination of features. Now, neuropsychological cases can be especially interesting when one finds two syndromes that are essentially opposites of one another. And with respect to the agnosias, a fascinating mirror disorder to prosopagnosia is something called Capgras delusions. Remember, prosopagnosia is familiarity without recognition. Well, people with Capgras delusion, they suffer from an opposite kind of state of, of, of affairs. They can recognize things just fine, but the things that they recognize do not feel familiar to them. In fact, they feel decidedly unfamiliar. Patients with Capgras syndrome uh, who live with a spouse or, or somebody close like that, they often report things like the following. They will say that their spouse, yeah, that's them. That looks like them. That the sound of their voice is them. You know, I can recognize it as them. But they don't feel right. There's something about them that feels wrong. They don't feel familiar. And in fact, they sometimes become so convinced that this person is wrong that they come up with kind of extreme ideas like maybe this is a robot or maybe this is an alien that somehow is within their spouse's body. In fact, in a few dramatic cases, they've even killed their spouses and done things like remove their heads. Why? Because they want to show the wires or the alien anatomy. They want to convince others that they're not crazy. So, to the extent that familiarity arises from these implicit learning systems we talk about, this disorder reflects a failure of non-declarative memory in a context where declarative memory, recognition, is working just fine. Some disorders also target procedural memory. 
Uh, you may have heard of Tourette syndrome, and perhaps when you think of it, you think of patients who suddenly and uncontrollably blurt out obscenities. Turns out that only a minority of patients display that behavior. Uh, most just show some sign of what we would call tics, like a compulsive eye blinking or throat clearing, coughing, sniffing, things like that that occur in the background of otherwise normal behavior. In addition, patients with Tourette syndrome are also slower to acquire procedural memories. Patients with HIV show a decreased ability to execute procedural behavior, and that suggests some deterioration of the brain systems uh, is going on there as well. Well, what do these two health issues have in common, Tourette's and AIDS? They both negatively affect a brain area called the striatum. Perhaps this brain region controls learning and performance of procedural memory. Well, there's further evidence to support that possibility, and that comes from patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Patients who can't help but obsessively engage in specific thoughts or behaviors. So, for example, an obsessive-compulsive patient might feel the need to repeatedly check to ensure that the oven has been turned off. And they may have to do this ten or more times before they feel convinced that it was. What makes these patients especially interesting is they actually have a larger striatum than normal. And if the striatum underlies procedural memory, these patients should have an enhanced ability to learn and perform procedural memory tasks. And they do. It turns out that the motor movement itself is very complex, especially when performed with the level of precision and grace typical of our human performance. Other brain regions also play roles in the initiation and the smooth execution of behavior, including the frontal lobes and the cerebellum. When those areas become damaged, as they are, for example, in Parkinson's disease, movements can become much less graceful and hard to initiate. But in terms of procedural memory, it really seems that it's the striatum that's where most of the learning occurs. As these various conditions show, damage to specific brain areas related to memory can give rise to very specific deficits, and these deficits can have a real human toll. My hope was that by introducing you to some of these patients, I could communicate the relation between the brain and memory in a different and more human way. One that shows just how important these systems are to our abilities to smoothly interact with the world. All of these conditions I describe represent situations where specific memory systems are impaired. But really, these situations all pale when compared to the greatest thief of memory. That thief is Alzheimer's disease, and it will be the subject of our next lecture. Lecture 17, The Many Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. At the end of the last lecture, I described Alzheimer's disease as the greatest thief of memory we have ever known. That characterization applies both to how much it steals and how many it steals from. What's more, those whose memories are stolen, they're not the only victims. In fact, the odds are very high that many of you watching this lecture will have been touched by the disease itself or that you know someone who has been. It's estimated that the disease itself will affect 1 in 85 people by the year 2050. And for every person that's directly affected, there'll be another 1 to 3 caregivers whose lives may also be changed almost as dramatically as the life of the patient herself. It really is not an exaggeration to say that Alzheimer's disease often attacks at least two people at once. The patient who suffers from it 
and typically a very close family member who becomes the primary caregiver. And often it actually seems as though the caregiver experiences a sort of pain and suffering that is in some ways worse than that suffered by the patient. In this lecture, I will be highlighting some of the characteristics of Alzheimer's disease and emphasizing the way it affects the memory of the patient, but also the social bonds between the caregiver and the patient. I have to say in advance, this is not a pleasant story. Alzheimer's disease is progressive and it's terminal, meaning it only gets worse with time and it's invariably fatal. As one caregiver states in a documentary on this subject, it is the long goodbye as caregivers watch their loved ones recede slowly into themselves and then ultimately into death itself. As horrible as all this sounds, I'm also going to try to bring some hopeful and useful information forward. Specifically, I'm going to highlight some of the factors that may help prevent Alzheimer's disease, factors that you may wish to introduce into your own daily living. In addition, I will use this disease as an example of how technology can be used to provide what some are calling cognitive prosthetics. These are aids that can help patients maintain their dignity and their abilities and that may even provide tools that can help the search for successful treatments. But let's first be clear that those who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease are going through an entirely different process than those who are simply aging. Aging is sometimes referred to as reflecting what's called normal dementia. As, I'm going, as I'll argue in a subsequent lecture, this use of the term dementia seems a bit misleading to me. I prefer the expression cognitive transition or cognitive transformation. These terms emphasize a change, a change that's perhaps not entirely unlike the transition from adolescence to early adulthood. But however one refers to it, the normal characteristics of aging are very different from what happens in the case of Alzheimer's. We may lose some memory function as we age, but nothing nearly as dramatic or progressive as that experienced by an Alzheimer's patient. In fact, one of my primary goals in this lecture and in this course is to help you recognize the difference between changes that are normal in the aging brain versus what happens in Alzheimer's. As widespread as Alzheimer's has become, misinformed fear is perhaps even more widespread. Whole neighborhoods can sometimes devolve into gossip and worry over who might or might not be showing signs of it. So understanding the differences between Alzheimer's and normal aging, they can that could help to relieve some needless anxiety. So let's look at what actually happens in Alzheimer's. The progression of the disease is typically broken down into three stages, sometimes preceded by a preliminary stage. It's this preliminary stage which some are hesitant to definitively link to the disease at all. It's a stage characterized by what is termed mild cognitive impairment. It's the preliminary stage of mild cognitive impairment that triggers more widespread anxiety. Patients suffering from this sort of impairment do not exhibit symptoms severe or constant enough to be identified as Alzheimer's patients given the tests that we have to detect the disease. But even though the clinical term is mild impairment, this refers to memory impairment that is worse than is normal for people of the same age. I'll discuss that more in a moment. Moreover, it's always not clear whether all those experiencing mild cognitive impairment progress to full-blown Alzheimer's disease at all. So this preliminary stage doesn't show actual symptoms of Alzheimer's, and it's not clear it leads to Alzheimer's. Furthermore, although 
it is likely that those who do end up with Alzheimer's did previously experience a period of mild cognitive impairment. That seems not always to be the case. So even someone suffering from mild cognitive impairment may not progress to Alzheimer's disease. Mild cognitive impairment does typically progress to Alzheimer's disease though, and does so after a period of perhaps two to five years. From there, the disease progresses to early stage Alzheimer's, then moderate, and then to advanced stage Alzheimer's. Movement through these various stages can take between 7 and 14 years, with only 3% of patients living more than 14 years beyond diagnosis. This progression through these three stages is the period of that long goodbye. I should also mention that while the disease typically strikes later in life, when a patient is 60 or older, a small percentage of patients suffer from what's called early onset Alzheimer's disease. And this version of the disease has a very strong genetic link. Patients in their 40s or younger may already begin experiencing the symptoms. And it's not uncommon that more than 60% of deaths in a family may be due to Alzheimer's when the family have a specific gene that's linked to early onset. But regardless of the age of onset, the general progression of symptoms is the same. So let's visit those symptoms now. Generally speaking, the disease targets memory systems and it destroys them in almost an order that's the reverse of how they were built up early in life. Early on, it's the episodic memory of most recently learned information that's most likely to be impaired. And note that this sort of memory loss is also typical of normal dementia. And that's one of the reasons why it, it can be difficult to, to detect the difference between the two very early on. However, even during the preliminary stage, that stage categorized as mild cognitive impairment, there will be times when the patient will suffer periods of almost complete memory loss. They literally will forget who they are, where they live, and if they happen to be in an unfamiliar location, they may also forget where they are and where they were going. In essence, it is like they suddenly suffer a catastrophic loss of all of their personal information. And note, this is just the preliminary stage and there has already been a catastrophic loss of personal information. The practical point is this. You are not showing early signs of Alzheimer's disease when you're having the normal experience of forgetting. The person suffering a catastrophic loss of personal identity is aware that what they're experiencing is not normal. Now unfortunately, they very often react to that experience with an inward sense of embarrassment. They feel like they should know these things and that they must be stupid not to know them. So a patient may enter a room, for example, where family members are, and they may begin saying something. But then they may suddenly completely forget who they are and what they were saying. But rather than just admitting this to the people in front of them, people that might suddenly not, they might not even recognize these people as their family anymore, they try to cover this up. They cover up what they're experiencing, perhaps they make a joke, Perhaps they head to a bedroom or a bathroom. Eventually their memory returns and they kind of forget about the experience. And if they do remember, their understandable but misplaced shame can prevent them from admitting their symptoms and that leaves it really up to the family members to detect. What's worse, if a family member does detect something odd, and even if they're proactive enough to book a screening for Alzheimer's, if the patient is not suffering such a bout during the test, the Alzheimer's may not even be detected. I've been trying to give you tips now and then throughout this course, so my tip here is to be aware of these signs of Alzheimer's 
and to make sure that older people that you interact with are also aware of them. These bouts are not subtle. Losing your sense of identity is, well, it's rather dramatic. If, let's say, your mother knows about this, and then she acts in a manner that you worry about, you think perhaps she has suffered one of these bouts, well, perhaps knowing about them will give you an opportunity to figure things out early. Now, that said, even this can be tricky. When it happens, when the patient is in the middle of a bout like this, they're confused, they're embarrassed, they're defensive, and they may not respond to queries by saying, you know what, you're right, I don't know who I am right now and I don't know who you are. Don't expect a nice calm intellectual discussion. But I do think it's okay to ask a question or two, if only to assess if the response is more defensive than you would expect. And then once the person is feeling better, maybe then you can talk about it and then you can try to get a better sense of what may or may not be going on. Okay, so these bouts continue into the early stages of diagnosed Alzheimer's and within both of these stages, mild cognitive impairment and the early stage of Alzheimer's, this symptom, these bouts of memory loss, can become especially dangerous when they occur in combination with another common symptom. That is, sometimes during these early stages, patients become hyperactive. They may have really serious problems sleeping at night and they may sometimes just feel like they have to get out and walk. Now, of course, at a very general level, exercise is great. However, it becomes dangerous when a loss of self-awareness occurs while a patient is walking. Remember, patients feel stupid and embarrassed when these bouts occur. So let's imagine a patient walking down a road only to suddenly lose all of their personal information. They don't know which way to go, and they don't want to ask anyone for help because they feel stupid. So they walk, and they walk, and they walk, without any sense of where they're going and what they're hoping to find. In fact, in many communities, patients are asked to wear bracelets that include information that this person does indeed suffer from Alzheimer's disease. Bracelets that also tend to include a phone number and some sort of identifying information. When the number is called, the person answering consults what's usually called a wandering database. And that database identifies the patient and it provides information on the caregivers who could then be called to pick the patient up. So typically a family member. It's either that or a police officer comes and brings the patient back home. Now I'd like you to imagine this though from the perspective of the patient for a moment. You are walking. Suddenly you forget everything and you feel like an idiot. You keep walking and walking, probably doubling back and taking different streets until eventually somebody notices that you're acting lost and they confront you about it, likely offering uh, assistance. So they confront you in a positive way, but still they confront you. You must admit to this stranger that you don't know who you are and where you're going. Hopefully they notice your bracelet and they bring you to an unfamiliar home and ultimately the police or some family member family member you may not even recognize in the moment brings you home. When you arrive at home you see many worried faces and it's obvious that you have caused all sorts of distress by being such an idiot or at least that's how it may feel to you. What emotional state will this likely produce? And what will be the consequences of all this? Well if it happens repeatedly and it will the soon, then sooner or later, your caregiver will insist on controlling your movements. 
Doors will be locked. You will essentially be jailed. And the next time you suffer a bout of memory loss, you will find yourself locked in some strange place. If you make a fuss, then some person that you may or may not recognize will not let you out. You're confused, you're angry, and you may even say something really nasty. From the caregiver's perspective, this is also a horrible situation. In trying to do their very best for a loved one, they are forced to control them. And that often results in frustration and anger being directed at them. It's an extremely bitter reward for perhaps the highest demonstration of love and caring. During this early stage, patients will often also forget recently learned information, even when not suffering one of these bouts of complete memory loss. So a caregiver, for example, might ask them to do something. Could you do the dishes while I'm at work? And the patient will forget that. And when it's not done, the patient might say something like, you never told me to do that. You never asked me to do that. You can see how this could lead to more frustration within that caregiver-patient relationship. The patient is also frustrated during this period by language problems. They will have problems finding specific words for things they want to say. Now, we all have that problem sometimes, so-called word-finding errors, but it's worse with Alzheimer's patients. They experience this much more commonly, and they also have language fluency problems in general. Their semantic memory is breaking down. And all of this combines to make the disease one that targets social relationships almost as much as it's targeting memory. In fact, that's one thing to take from this, is the realization of how important memory is in terms of supporting strong social relationships. When memory fails in such a catastrophic way, it can take down even our very closest social relationships along with it. Eventually, the symptoms become worse, as the patient moves in to the so-called moderate stage of the disease. From a memory perspective, this is where we begin to see further deteriorations in both semantic and procedural memory. Patients forget how to brush their teeth. They may forget how to get dressed, how to take a shower, how to do many of those things that they used to do routinely and do on their own. Even their habits are lost, and without reliable habits, they also lose their independence. So at this point, they now need a lot of assistance just to function. And this is the time when some caregivers will move the patient to a nursing home. That alone is usually a very expensive and also very heart-rending decision. To the patient, it may seem that they're being abandoned. Because of this, some caregivers will actually try not to make this move. Those caregivers really have to become nurses themselves. They have to take control. So either way, if you make the move, then sometimes you're, the patient is being angry and feeling abandoned, but if you become the nurse, you are now nurse to a patient who, in place, is still angry, frustrated, confused, and seemingly ungrateful. During this moderate stage, language problems become further increased, and wandering can become even more pronounced. Mood is also greatly affected. So, the patient may cry or become aggressive just without warning, out of the blue. And the decreased language abilities make it even harder for a caregiver to connect with that person they love and remember. It can seem like this person is transforming in front of their eyes and they're losing touch with the person they once knew. Literally, the person they love is receding and the person they are interacting with is often very difficult. 
The patient may also lose disease awareness at this stage. So despite everything that's happening around them, they're not even aware that they have any sort of problem. This complicates things considerably. Now in the advanced stage of Alzheimer's, patients are completely dependent on the care of others. Language gets reduced to just words or very short phrases. Patients typically exhibit exhaustion and will not be able to perform even the simplest task without assistance. Sometime during this stage, patients typically become bedridden and eventually they will pass away, though typically not from the disease itself. Usually they will die of pneumonia or adrenal failure or the loss of some other critical system. As I warned, this is a grim and potentially de depressing progression. Personally, I find it absolutely horrible that we could have such a rich, warm relationship with someone we love dearly and then have it end this way. Our whole typical notion of a caregiver-patient relationship is one where we kind of think of the patient as understanding the sacrifice of the caregiver and responding with love and deep thanks. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, the lack of disease awareness and the general confusion and frustration and embarrassment that the patients feel can make them react negatively to someone they no longer even recognize as a loving family member. So, instead, they come to see this as someone who's controlling them or confining them, and certainly this can break the hearts of those who are showing their love in the strongest way they possibly can. So what can be done about this? Well, many people are trying hard to understand the disease better and to figure out how to treat it. However, the punchline is this. We currently just don't have a good understanding of the disease. We do know that patients with Alzheimer's disease show abnormalities in their brain. They have abnormal clumps that are called amyloid plaques, and they have more tangled fibers called neurofibrillary tangles. Uh, the plaques start in several locations, while the tangles start deep in the brain in an area called the entorhinal cortex. Later, they spread to the hippocampus. And as these plaques and tangles spread, they interfere with the functioning of more and more healthy neurons, as neurons lose this ability to communicate with each other, they die. This is one of the reasons that agents that reduce the plaques and tangles do not reduce the symptoms. The brain cells are already dead. So the best we can do right now is really to offer some treatments that provide small benefits in the severity of the symptoms. There is no cure, nor do we even seem to be able to slow the progression of the disease to any significant extent. So we have a long way to go in terms of understanding and treating the disease. Given that no cure is available, I want to spend the remainder of the lecture highlighting two other ways we can react to Alzheimer's disease. The first is the possible role of lifestyle in terms of prevention. As you'll see, there may be some things we can do that may reduce the likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease, although the evidence is not nearly as firm as we might like. In fact, given that genetics and one's early environment also appear to contribute to the disease, the possible benefits of lifestyle change may vary from person to person. The second issue we'll discuss concerns ideas of how to respond once the disease has already been diagnosed. One idea is something that I myself have been working on, the notion of using technology as a cognitive prosthetic. This is something that might both enhance the life of the patients and caregivers, while also offering a new tool that might help us gather information and perhaps even assess treatments. But let's start with prevention.
First, it's important to stress that it's extremely difficult to perform really tight scientific experiments that firmly link any behavior to higher or lower rates of the disease. Instead, we're often looking at correlations. So for example, we know that there's a lower incidence of Alzheimer's disease in Mediterranean regions, and it seems for those who eat Mediterranean diets. This has led some to suggest that we should be eating a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, olive oil, and of course red wine, and if we do so, that may help prevent Alzheimer's disease. Now when I say we need to be careful with such claims, it's for the following reasons. The people who tend to eat such diets tend to be people of Mediterranean descent, and it may simply be the case that there is some aspect of their genetics that is different, and as a result of that shared heritage, they have that shared genetics, and that's what's actually giving them some insulation to the disease. It may not have to do with the food they eat, or maybe it does. It's really hard to know for sure. But with this caveat in place, here are some other similar factors. People who engage in uh, activities that involve cognitive stimulation, they seem less likely to get Alzheimer's disease. So this could include activities like playing chess or card games, crossword puzzles, uh, playing a musical instrument, or even those who commonly engage in social interactions. The notion is not that these activities prevent Alzheimer's directly, but that they forestall conditions of cognitive decline that may be more hospitable to Alzheimer's. So according to this idea, for example, those London taxi drivers we were talking about, the ones with an enlarged hippocampus, that's creating a less hospitable environment for Alzheimer's to take off, and by engaging in a lot of intellectual activity, you're kind of doing the same thing. Interestingly, medical marijuana seems to delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease, and it's apparently because the active ingredient in marijuana, THC, prevents the formation of the brain deposits associated with the disease. Alzheimer's disease is also more prevalent in 